We're in the book of Joshua. <clears throat> Joshua chapter 9. And we've been going through this series looking at this and looking at um, this, what we call the conquering of Canaan. And that's a historical book in the Bible, in your Old Testament. And it recounts really the history of Israel going from their wilderness experience, where they were there for 40 years in the wilderness, and that desert experience, and they entered in to the land of Canaan, the place that God had promised their ancestors, particularly Abraham, had given him that title deed, and had promised that there, they would dwell in that land. But as you've looked at this, and as we've gone through this, you see that we, uh, the, the, really the picture here is the entrance into a place that God has for you. Canaan, although sometimes in our hymns we sing about it or our songs about Canaan being like a type of heaven, um, its best type really is not heaven, but rather the place we have in Christ or in faith where God wants us to be reliant on him. And that's really the picture. It's the daily walking. Because that's part of the Christian walk that you have to possess. You have to go in and enter in. And leave the old behind and walk into the new. And for the Israelites, it was very much a real physical battle. For the Christian, for the believer in this age, it is rather a spiritual battle that we fight. And it is something that wars against us all the time. And as we've gone through this series we've learned as joshua leads the children of israel and uh, does so joshua being a picture or type of christ he he was not christ but he was a type in that he was a leader of that nation and he was really the one god had to mediate in that sense between himself and his people and as a leader that's what joshua did um but we see that as they enter into this land and there's these battles that take place, right? You have the first one, which was the city of what? Remember? The battle of Jericho. Yeah. And Jericho, we find out from that city that Joshua didn't have to do much. They just had to do what God told them to do and march around the city, blow a trumpet, and the walls come down. Great miracle. And it was great in that they, the enemy was defeated. Um, and God judged that city, and I have already said many times that the judgment of God had been upon them for hundreds of years, and they knew of that, and yet did not repent, even though God was merciful and gave them years and years and years to repent. And that picture of Jericho <clears throat> pictures for us really the world and the system of the world that wars against the believer. And the only way to overcome the world is by faith. In the Bible, in 1 John 4, 5, 4, it says, For whoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. And so Jericho is a picture of that enemy that wars against the believer. Ai was the next city, <clears throat> just a little city. And that city, really, we looked at this uh, most recently, was a type of what we call the flesh. That's the enemy within that's the enemy of all of us, the old nature, the sinful nature that is always desiring to do something against God and to do something only for ourselves. It's self-driven and it comes from that. And sometimes we blame a lot on others and it's really us, right? And AI pictures that. And the only way to defeat AI was a cunning way that God instructed was to lay an ambush and, and to cut off that 
part of the enemy and God defeats the people of Ai. And we learned about that. Well, today we're going to come to a different city or a different people, I should say. It's not a city. It's the, the people of Gibeah or the Gibeonites. And the Gibeonites picture for us the third enemy that is constantly warring against us and another enemy that is very dangerous and, and even today would have us, right now, would have us defeated. And that is uh, Gideon or Gibeon, that is, re- reveals to us a type of really what the devil is like or Satan. Satan is our great enemy. We're going to pick up Joshua chapter 9. We're going to read down through the first 13 verses and then we'll go back there. And it came to pass when all the kings who were on the side of the Jordan in the hills and in the lowland and in all the coasts of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite heard about it, that they gathered together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. But when this... When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they worked craftily and went and pretended to be ambassadors. And they took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins torn and mended, old and patched sandals on their feet, and old garments on themselves, and all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal, and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a far country. Now therefore, make a covenant with us. And then the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you dwell among us. So how can we make a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? And they said to him, From a very far country. Your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt. And all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon king of Heshbon and Og king of Bashan, who was at Ashtaroth. Therefore our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us, saying, Take provisions with you for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Now therefore, make a covenant with us. This bread of ours we took hot for our provision from our houses on the day we departed to come to you. But now, look, it is dry and moldy. And these wineskins which were filled were new. And see, they are torn. And these are garments and our sandals have become old because of the very long journey. Let's pray. God, we are grateful, grateful for your word, grateful for the opportunity to just come here and to study and to learn more about what you have for us. And so, Lord, as we open up the scriptures, I always, as always, I pray, Lord, you'd open it to our hearts and minds and may we see Christ. We ask that in his name. Amen. We come to this section of scripture as I get my water here, excuse me. We come to this section of scripture and we see the Gibeonites. They are actually people that are numbered right there with the other people of the land. And they were part of the the inhabitants of the land that were under God's judgment. And we read in verse 1 where it says, And it came to pass when all the kings were on, uh, on this side of Jordan. That's referring to the land of Canaan. 
It says in the hills and in the lowland, in the coast, in the great sea toward Lebanon. So you have all that group that is stretched there in that land which was promised Israel and that names all those uh, tribes of people. And then it says, they gathered together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. Now, there is always a battle that is in the making. It just is. In a fallen, sinful world, that's how it goes. And if you think everything is, is nice and calm and peaceful and you don't have any battles out there, physical or spiritual, then I would just say be prepared because it's coming. You know, that's the way, that's human history, that's the world history, that's my history. You know, as I've looked out and lived now, what, 53 years and said, God, there are many days <clears throat> where you feel like the battle is on the horizon. Well, certainly what had taken place over the the people of Jericho, the victory there and at Ai, had gotten the attention of the other inhabitants of the land. They were, they were upset, and they banded together to fight against the Israelites. And that often is the case. But then there's this other group that's there too, the people of Gibeah, and that's what it says there in verse 3. But when <clears throat> the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, and they come up with this plan, is really what it is. They decide to really go and trick the Israelites and, um, and make sure that they can somehow, while they were doing it in their own interest, they didn't want to die, they didn't want to be judged, and they decided to come up with a plan. And their plan was one that was rooted in deception. And if you want to look a little bit about this chapter as far as an outline point one is the enemy can be deceptive actually the enemy from you know through deception is the hardest enemy to be really fighting against because if you've been deceived you don't know you've been deceived Uh, i think back in my military days in the 1980s during the height of the cold war okay um, I went and was stationed in Germany in 1988, and there was about another year before the Berlin Wall would come down, and the Cold War began to really stop. I guess it, it actually, by 1991, you know, it was declared uh, over, you know, essentially. But at the height of 1988, I mean, we were still going out, and if you were in a combat arms group or whatever, you were always going out on alerts and things like that, and you never knew if this was the real thing or not. And we had uh, training to be on the lookout for those that might infiltrate to get information about our movements throughout Western Europe. And we always had these little reminders and things like that. And the then Soviet Union, who was what the U.S. was really, and NATO forces were against, and they were it was a big standoff, uh, were always doing that back and forth. <clears throat> and it was interesting, on one occasion... We uh, had gone out on an alert, well, we were on an alert early in the morning, 4 o'clock in the morning. Uh, we went out, and uh, my platoon was a scout platoon. We always were ready to, you know, break the gate in about 20 minutes from the time we, we had an alert, and we were ready to go off to war. And it was interesting. An alert went out, and we were just getting ready to move and all that, and we noticed there's a guy, and he wasn't an unfamiliar guy, but he was out with this little street sweeper thing that he had, and he was in our motor pool doing street sweeping. You know, the cobblestones that were there and all this. And, I, and it was interesting. Um, I didn't notice it. I didn't know it. But someone who had a keen eye said, that guy's never here at that time of the day. Why is he here? 
And come to find out, they, they figured out that he actually was a spy. And he had been hired by the military, the U.S. government, to go clean our, our grounds, you know, with the contract. But he was actually working at the time for the enemy. And uh, I don't know what came of that, but it was a big enough thing that I remember we had a very solemn reminder that make sure you know everything that's going on around you. And I'm sure he was just gathering information on our troop strengths and things like that, which that's the way the enemy works. And, uh, you know, I, I, that's probably my only spy story I have, by the way, you know, anything like that. But I, I think of that because deception is at the heart, really, of what the devil does. Our enemy, who is <clears throat> named Satan, um, the devil, as he is termed in Scripture, and he's very deceptive. The very first instance in Genesis 3 where you see the devil talking to Eve and Adam, <clears throat> you find him being deceptive. And he's, that type of his nature carries throughout all of Scripture. And we'll look at that in a moment here. But the devil is like that. The Bible says in Joshua 9, 4 and 5, says they worked craftily and went and presented to be ambassadors, and they took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins torn and mended, old patched sandals on their feet, old garments on themselves, and all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. From the outside, looking at the Gibeonites, that this traveling band of people that would come and present themselves to Joshua, they looked like they had been on a far journey. The reality was they were just over the hill, out of sight is where they came from, but they made to look like they were something else from somewhere else. And our enemy is like that. The Bible says of Satan, it says, put on the whole armor of God, that's to the Christian, that you may be able to withstand or to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now that word wiles is not a word we use often in our language, but it really means trickery is what it is. Uh, it's an old English word, trickery. And the devil is one who's like the Gibeonites. He's crafty, he's trick, he, he has tricks, and he plays tricks. And that's part of what you do. If you ever have gone to a magic show or something like that, a magician will um, deceive for entertainment purposes by playing these little tricks. And sometimes it's just the sleight of hand, or it's pulling something out of your sleeve or whatever else. I mean, they do all kinds of weird things, right? And we go, wow, wasn't that neat? Well, it can be dangerous when you're doing that for spiritual things, right? Going somewhere to be entertained and all of a sudden, you know, your soul is captured by that. For Israel, their very existence depended upon their... Um, their really obedience to what God had given them. And remember, God had told them they weren't to make covenants with the people in the land. They were instead to conquer the land and drive them out. That was the, what God had told them to do. And we see these Gibeonites come and <clears throat> they put on the old clothes and they have the moldy bread and, and they say, we are ambassadors from a far country and we have heard what God is doing with you guys. And we just have come because we want to be part of that. We want to be part of you. And we find here one of the chapters of the Bible that records one of the greatest compromises that takes place in the history of Israel. Um, the Bible also refers to the, uh, 
the devil as one who sets snares. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 7, Timothy is instructed by the Apostle Paul. It says, moreover, referring to the, the servant of God, or in this case, a pastor like first, you know, what Timothy is. He's a, he was a young pastor at Ephesus. And he writes and he says, moreover, he, the pastor, must be a good testimony among those who are outside lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Do you know, one of the things the devil wants to do to us today is ruin our testimony. That's why we're to be careful that we don't, well, first of all, we don't allow him to ruin our testimony by the things that we're doing or letting things into our life. You know, often um, people talk about, you know, as, as a Christian, we have liberty to live certain ways, right? There's a lot of liberty in Christ. There is. But... There's, for the believer, we're never to be living with a license to sin. And we have to be careful with that, okay? Some people like to go as close to the red line in the sand as they, you know, or the line in the sand as they can get. And the reality is this, it, it's very easy to cross that when you're living in that territory. For, for Timothy, he was warned, beware. Keep your testimony. Guard it. Because the devil is out there and he wants to get you in a snare. A snare is a very deceptive trap, isn't it? Any traps really are like that. You have to deceive an animal to get into a snare. And when they do, like a rabbit or something like that. Now, it's illegal to do this in Maine, just so you know. But my dad was a game warden and you know he had caught more than one person with people with uh, snares. And... Um, you would very simple little device is you take a piece of very thin wire and you loop it and you set it in an area where a rabbit has been traveling and you can follow the tracks on that and you put it just high enough so that when the rabbit comes up to that doesn't see the wire catches the wire around its neck and then as the rabbit tries to get away it gets tighter and tighter and tighter and eventually strangulates and somebody goes along checks it and they have fresh game right Well, that's what the devil's like. He likes to lay a trap for you. And he was, in this case, using the Gibeonites to lay a trap for Joshua and the people of Israel. Beware of his cunning tricks. And by the way, he uses means by where his deception looks good. On the surface, the Gibeonites looked indeed like they had traveled a long distance and they had come from a far country. And what they were saying or their words, those things sounded right. But something didn't really look right. And we'll talk some more about that. And by the way, Satan is like that. The image that often we have in our mind of Satan is either some hideous picture you've seen, you know, with 666 on it or something like that, with flames coming out of some weird eyes or, you know, and, and somebody saying that's Satan. Or, or we think of the little guy in the red pajamas and horns and a pitchfork, right? And, and that's kind of what we think. But the Bible actually says that he's like an angel of light. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, or 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, and no wonder, Paul says, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. An angel of light would be something to behold. It would be something beautiful. And you can imagine if an angel of light just appeared here today and said, I have a message for you. 
And I think a lot of people would take note of that. Now, hopefully you wouldn't, especially in the context of this morning. But, you know, Satan is out there capturing the minds of people, and he does it with flattering words. He does it with ways of taking the truth and twisting it just enough so there's still a little bit of truth, but what it comes out with is deception. And again, as I said, those who have been deceived don't know they've been deceived. There are sincere people in this world who will go out and they will, well, they'll hold a Bible under their arm and they'll walk along and they'll come, sometimes they'll come to your house. They'll knock on your door. And I want to tell you about another testament of Jesus Christ. That's, by the way, something that Joseph Smith Jr. brought forward in the 1800s called the Book of Mormon. And I'm not trying to bash people or anything like that, but I've had several conversations with Mormon missionaries over the years, and I've said, you believe in the Bible, but then you have another testament. What's that all about? And then we talk about it. We find out the Jesus that is portrayed in that camp is a different Jesus. How do I know that? Because I have the Word of God, and I can look at it. And they're very sincere, usually young men that come, and they are very sincere, good-looking missionaries. They seem to have a good heart. They sometimes even will come to a church and sit in a church and say, we believe the same thing you do. That has happened. (laughs) And I'll tell you what, be careful. Because the gospel in which they have is not a true gospel. It's a false gospel. And I'm, again live in a country you're free to believe what do you want to believe but beware because eternally it may get you in a lot of trouble and you may be on your road to hell and not know it being deceived trickery be careful joshua chapter 9 verse 6 and they went to joshua to the camp at gilgal and said to him men of israel we have come from a far country now therefore make a covenant with us and follow the words that are said here. Then the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you dwell among us. Well, they did. But now, you know, they, they were a little bit skeptical. And that's good. Be skeptical. I think, honestly, especially uh, people of faith, Christians in general, can be caught up with things and deceived rather easily because in many ways... If you're following the Lord, we are to be somewhat vulnerable to people, right? In other words, sometimes some rough character comes in, and, and, and you know what? That rough character needs the Lord, and he's truly seeking. And we should be loving and caring and open up our fellowship to that in the sense of bringing somebody into a place where they can hear the Word of God. However, always keep a little skepticism, right? And know that sometimes people come in and they aren't necessarily looking very rough. They might look super spiritual. And I always, I'll tell you what, I always, my, my little antenna goes up when it's the super spiritual that walks in and says, I'm here finally to, you know, to help you all. Because I'm always like, well, where'd they just come from and why? And sometimes I'm pleasantly surprised that indeed it is their walk. But sometimes after just a few minutes, I can figure out something's not quite right here. I mean, I couldn't bring something up, and I wouldn't anyways to slander you if I didn't know something. I, I would try never to do that. 
But often the fruit of someone's heart is revealed rather quickly as you examine them. Beware of that. And make sure it's measured by the word of God and not just by a man or a woman. Because Israel had the written word of God. They had the law of Moses. They had the commandments of God himself. And were told not to make a covenant with the people in the land. Perhaps you dwell among us. But they said to Joshua, we are your servants. Doesn't that sound good? Yeah, I need a few more servants. Right? I mean, who wouldn't want somebody to just serve you, right? Um, you know, take care of those dishes at home and the firewood and everything else and, you know, snap your fingers and they do your bidding. See, they're playing on something. We're your servants. We're here to help. Then Joshua said to them, who are you and where do you come from? And so they said to him, from a very far country. It's a flat out lie. They, they were not from a far country at all. They were right from among them. And sometimes the devil is in the details, right? And they begin to talk about where they came from. And and they use, again, flattering words and all of those things. And then um, in verse 13, as you see there, it says, And these wineskins which we filled were new, and see, they are, are torn, and these are garments, and our sandals have become old because of a very long journey. They back up their false words with false signs. But they didn't consult the Lord. And that's the the big important thing. And Satan is like that. He would desire that we would be out of the battle, or at least distracted. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, it says, Now, Whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. And you know why you forgive others? Lest Satan should take advantage of us. One of the great things, really, I say great and not in a good way, but the uh, characteristics of Satan is that he's not forgiving. He can't forgive, by the way. But yet... He will stir up people sometimes to be unforgiving and those ways. And he takes advantage of us. Again, some of his character. For we are not ignorant of his devices, Paul says. And he's right. We're not. We should know when something doesn't look right. And we open up the word of God and we say, wait a minute. That person says I can do this and the Bible says I shouldn't. That was one of the things also that helped lead me to Christ. As I began to read the Bible when I was a teenager, and I did so more out of pride at first because I had a friend who challenged me to do it, and I said, fine, I will, and I'll prove you wrong. And I found out that I was wrong. And I found out those who were leading me in my religious circles were wrong. And when I confronted them from their own Bible and asked them, why do we do this? And the Bible, particularly Jesus, says this, like pray in vain repetition. You know what? Didn't have an answer. That person. And I remember thinking, wow, that's a problem. And I remember asking and saying, well, how do you get to heaven? And my religious leader said, well, if I don't get there, I'll be disappointed. That's what his answer was. And I thought, well, if he doesn't know if he's getting to heaven, how can I? And I began to, again, dig into the scriptures. And every question I had about life and, and my 
origin and my destiny and everything going on was found in this book. Not every small detail of everything, but rather the big things that we all ask. Where did I come from? Why am I here? Why is there evil in the world? Why, where am I going? Is there a heaven? Is there a hell? Well, guess what? It's all here. And it's the map of eternal life. And you receive that eternal life by receiving Jesus Christ, the very God the Son, as he came and he died for us. He lives, lives for us today, resurrected, and ascended into heaven. And I'll tell you, if you'll trust him, the Bible says, if you'll turn to him and repent of your sin, he'll make you a new creation. He'll forgive you of your sin. He'll seal you onto the day of redemption by his Holy Spirit. And we are now his. We go from the family of darkness to a family of light. And oh, I'm so thankful for that. <clears throat> We're not ignorant of his devices. Well, secondly, the enemy can be first deceptive, but he can be destructive. And, and that's a no-brainer. Destructive. That's the way Satan operates. Verse 14 of Joshua 9, Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. Now, there's a problem here. They didn't ask counsel of the Lord. Had they stopped and just said, Lord, what do you think about this? I think God would have clearly showed them. Actually, sometimes it's as easy of saying, what has God said already? Because he had said a lot of things. But they didn't. Instead, their eyes looked at the provisions and they thought, this must be the real deal. And it wasn't. Satan's like that. The Bible talks about him as our enemy. And in 1 Peter, Peter exhorts believers then in that first century, he says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Those two first phrases, be sober, be vigilant, stay alert, stay alive. <clears throat> when you don't stay alert, the devil will pounce. That's as simple as that. And to do so, we need to be sober. It's sober-minded. And, and, and the word means that. It means to be not controlled by other things as far as you know, like we often think of sobriety as being a state where you're not drunk or you're not intoxicated with something. And we live in a society where we're just getting more and more and more and more to a point where we're trying to just numb everything. For the believer, we're called to a higher level, my friends. And I'm not getting in with your doctor and saying, you know, this is what Doc gave me or what. I'm not, I'm not going, I'm saying this though, that for the Christian, he says, be sober. Because when you're sober, when your mind is as keen as it can be, and all some of us like me need all the help I can get, listen, you are able to see things a little clearer. And that's what vigilance is also. Looking. I, I, I tell you, you know, try to be, as we say, situationally aware of what's going on around you. And in a spiritual sense, that's extremely important because it's all of a sudden easy to have something come in in your home, in your life, in your church, wherever it is, that is a deceiver or a deception. And the devil's out there like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And we think, 
It's not going to be me today. Well, yeah, he can. Jesus calls him a liar and the father of it in John 8, 44. In Ephesians chapter 4, we're told here, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Back there in John, Jesus said he's not only a, a liar, but he's a father of uh, lies and a murderer. Think of the first murder in the Bible, and we, I think we talked about it last week. Cain killed his brother Abel. Why did Cain kill Abel? Because he was mad. He was angry that his brother's sacrifice was accepted and his wasn't. And the sun went down on his wrath. And he rose up and killed his brother. My friends, it's important that we don't let our anger rise up because it gives place to the devil every single time. They forgot to seek counsel of the Lord. And I often say this, that again, sometimes the mistakes we make, the sin we do, things like that, they're in ignorance sometimes. I I don't think anybody in Israel was purposely trying to make a covenant with the Gibeonites. That was not the case at all. They regretted it afterwards. But the, the instance here shows that so often we can jump into something and it's not reversible. You can't undo the scrambled egg. And the best you can do sometimes is make an omelet, you know? And that's kind of Joshua 9 here, because God is going to deal with the the Gibeonites, but he's going to deal with Israel, and he's still going to make something good out of it. Psalm 27, 14 says, Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Twice there in that verse, wait. Wait. How often we jump into something because of haste. And haste often leads to ruin. Be careful with that. It not only was destructive in what it did, but it it brought problems as well. In this Joshua 9.15, so Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant. He gave them his word and it was a binding covenant. And it says, with them to let them live. And the rulers of the congregation swore to them. And it happened at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them that they heard that they were their neighbors who dwelt near them. Oops. Should have waited three days. Then the children of Israel journeyed and came to their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon and and Cherpah, and Beeroth, and Kirjath-Jerim. But the children of Israel did not attack them, because the rulers of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel, and all the congregation complained against the rulers. Then all the rulers said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Now therefore we may not touch them. They had made a deal, a covenant, and said, We are not going to drive you out of the land. We're going to let you live. And it would bring a compromise at best. And this begins that compromise in the conquest of Canaan, which never came full, right? The full conquest of Canaan never happened. And uh, that's, that's sad. Now, God gave victories, and God still allowed his people in the land, but there were problems. 
This we will do to them. We'll, we will let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swore to them. And the rulers said to them, Let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for all the congregation as the rulers had promised. <clears throat> you know, the Bible says this of the system of the world and the world itself, and it's a quote from the Old Testament. It says, Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. There's a call of separation for the believer. And the devil would have us, well, he would love, love to have us just link arms and hold hands with, with himself. And you have light with darkness. And the Bible says, what fellowship does light have with darkness? And the answer is none. Light, though, can dispel darkness. That's what it does, always does. It doesn't go the other way. <coughs> and that goes to the last point, and we'll end quickly here but it's the enemy that can be defeated can be defeated for this case you have the gibeonites those people of those cities and all that they became truly servants as they had asked and they ended up serving the israelites then joshua called for them and he spoke to them saying why have you deceived us saying we are very far from you when you dwell near us now therefore you are cursed and none of you shall be freed from being slaves, woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. So they answered Joshua and said, Because your servants were clearly told that the Lord your God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy it, all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Therefore we were very much afraid for our lives because of you and have done this thing. And, and they did. They were sincere in that. They were afraid. They knew what their destiny was. Again, no sign of repentance towards God. Instead, they were just afraid and sad. And my friends, there's a lot of people today that are on that very same road. They're, they have some measure of the fear of death. They have some measure uh, that God is out there, but he's my enemy. And they don't choose to turn from their sins to a God who wants to be not their enemy, but their Savior. And he invites people to do that. And now, here we are in your hands. Do with us as it seems good and right to do to us. And so he did to them and delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel so that they did not kill them. And that day Joshua made them woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord in the place which he would choose even to this day. And my friends, they took a bad situation and the only thing they could do with it is defeat it in this form of capture and slavery. Now the Bible is not condoning slavery here as such in that way. It is a historical fact, a reference to the very thing of what took place. In this covenant, these people said, we'll be your servants. And generationally, they were. We come to the time of David, and in uh, David's account in 2 Samuel 21, we don't have to turn there, we find out that actually the Gibeonites, the, this covenant comes up again in David, David's time, and he preserves their life. And there, in that instance, appears to be those that have either assimilated or have come into the house of Israel even 
And um, so there was some measure of that. And I, and I would just put it this way, that there are times when the devil gets in the details and he makes a mess of a situation and believers end up with a bad deal in the process because they made it. But God can turn it around to use it. He can. I have said before, some of those times I've looked and seen what God has done and how he can take what, what really... Uh, Satan had envisioned to capture people's minds, and he's, he's able to bring people free of that. And um, I thought of that in the war in Ukraine the last year. Of course, the eastern part of Ukraine has been, uh, you know, been battled for several of those cities. And one of those cities last year was Sumy, Ukraine. I've shared this before with you, but back in um, around 2000 and 2001, we were in 2002 also, we were at Sumy in uh, in a camp that was there and it was really neat we had several hundred ukrainian kids that went out to this campsite and i'm saying a campsite it was there was like a big chapel area there was a soccer field there were dorms there were all kinds of things and they were pretty run down um but it was all there and um i when i first entered into that little camp property i asked one of the ukrainians i said what was this place anyways and he says and he, he told me, explained to me, this was what they call a young pioneers camp. And um, Victor and Zina, you would know more about that because you grew up in Belarus and Russia. And the, under the communist, uh, you know, really Lenin envisioned that if you could capture the minds of children, you would have people for their whole lives, right? And they really emphasized that. So one of the things he envisioned was taking the atheistic system of communism and uh, allowing children all across then the Soviet Union to be able to come to camps where they could be, you know, have a good time, like, you know, Boy Scouting and Girl Scouting, that kind of thing, but also be indoctrinated in communism, which was atheism. And that was offered to children uh, during those, gen- I mean, they could do that, go weeks in the summer for that. Well, when that all broke apart and fell apart, these camps were no longer funded and they just fell into disrepair. And Christians were able to go in and buy the properties for almost nothing. And that was the case there at Grace Camp in Sumy, Ukraine. They had gone in and for almost no money, they were able to purchase this whole camp and then began to renovate it. And I stood there <clears throat> looking at all these children learning the gospel and learning about Jesus Christ and thinking, Lord, you are just so good. You took what really the devil, and I mean his system, and of a system of atheism, really, and you took it what God or man intended for evil, God intended for good. And he literally redeemed or bought back a property that was the devil's. And I remember sitting there, and those are kids in Sumy, Ukraine, at Grace Camp, and there's hundreds and hundreds, probably thousands who have gone through that camp. And as far as I know, that, uh, that camp is still ongoing. That, that area right now is not under conflict, but um, the umbrella of it is always there and stuff like that. But you pray for the believers there. Um, a lot of them have left and been displaced, and that's throughout nations. And I just say, God is at work, you know. What is he doing in your life, in my life, and all that? Beware. Sometimes the devil is in the details. But Christ will always bring light to it if you let him. Father, thank you for the word of God. And Lord, I pray 
that you would even today help us, Lord, to be more vigilant, more sober-minded. And, oh, Lord, we would be a people who would not easily be deceived. And we would be able to bring truth to people in the times when they are. And, oh, Lord, help us to be people of this book. And may Christ be lifted up in our families and our lives. And as we go from this place this week, give us opportunity to witness to people. In Jesus' name, amen.